it's about who you're with and it's about the place you're in. It's not about a far off, you know, a far off place or a foreign tradition. And that's part of what we're doing with tea is to extricate tea from all of that hyper exoticization. Exactly. And to, and all of those traditions that don't really fit into our lives anymore. On this episode of Startup Explorer, we talked to Aaron and Gina, founders of August Uncommon Tea. We'll find out how a designer and a French professor ended up starting a tea company. Aaron and Gina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Gina, so let's start with you. So you got your PhD in French literature from Berkeley. I did. How did you end up in the tea business? Um, the shortest answer is I was really fed up with my job <laughs> as a French professor. Uh, not to say that I didn't value the work, I didn't enjoy it, um, or I wasn't good at it, but I, uh, I've always found myself with my creativity stifled. And when you're making lesson plans, you, there's actually quite a lot of room to, to create uh, different sorts of pedagogical methods or bring in new material. And I just, I always felt like everything that I did that was innovative was sort of falling flat. I didn't have, I, didn't, I just didn't have a lot of good reception from my students. Um, so that led to a lot of different sort of creative explorations of mine. And one of those was starting an olfactory blog so this everything related to scent i didn't want to focus on perfume because the blog world is saturated with a lot of perfume fans and that's totally fine i myself love perfume but i thought couldn't we open it up to something that's more a more sensorial research so i created this blog um, which is still live but i haven't had any time to do it since i started this but i just became really fascinated by what um what our sense of smell does for us and that of course ties into taste really strongly. So I started to think, well, what, what could I do? What could I do? What, and, and, and started to ask Aaron, you know, what would we do if we ever had a business together? So one day, um, well, I, I left academia a couple of times and this last time I did, um, I wrote, I wrote this big novel and then I realized, oh, I actually don't want to be a writer. So, okay, not that. Um, and the scent thing had been kind of, I don't know, it was just too labor intensive and I couldn't figure out how to make any money off of that either, although it was fun. So finally I thought, well, you know what, we've always had really great tea. And when I was in France, so I lived, I've been going to France since I was 16 and I lived in France probably for about five years if we put all of the semesters of research, et cetera, there. And I did my master's there. And while I was there, I discovered this amazing um, tea brand with beautiful tea houses. Uh, there's no coffee served. And I, t I told Aaron, you know, I think it would be really great if we had if we had a tea house somewhere. You know, maybe we should do that. And he said, well, okay, why don't why don't you just write a story? Because I had been writing, and so I'm kind of trying to tie these things together and exploring all sorts of creative avenues. And he said, well, just write a story, and so I can get an idea of what you're thinking. And I wrote a story in the second person about some about going to this tea room, what what you do, what the reader experiences. And Aaron said, okay, great. I think we should do this. And I said, what, what do you mean we should do this? And he said, yeah, well, let's, maybe we should do this. Maybe we should, we should find a tea company to provide amazing tea. We can build a great space. We have all these architect friends. Let's do something like this. There's nothing like this in LA, really, the way that you're describing it. Um, so that was really the origin. That's how, that's how the teaching and the research got wrapped up in this whole world, this whole sensual world. And, 
And I, I've come to realize that what led me to become a French professor was really just to keep exploring the world of French cuisine and French perfume. And it's such a highly sensorial um, culture that I never, I just got to the point where there wasn't any more research I could be paid to do there. So it came back, finally came full circle to, it's all about the food and the perfume and everything that's you know really pleasurable and hedonistic about French culture. Yeah. Aaron, and you worked as an art director and designer. Was it at IDEO most recently? Yeah, as a, I mean, at least in terms of when I was employed by one company and then wasn't freelancing. But yeah, IDEO was the last real full-time job I had. So when you were in Paris with Gina and she mentioned to you uh, what she just shared with us, what was your thought? Did you immediately know, I, I need to do this. I'm going to leave everything that I've been doing up until now. I've, I've been working as a designer for I don't even know. I mean, I started when I was in my high school years, so probably anywhere from 15 to 20 years. And over the last 10, I've realized that I have a really deep and and unfulfilled desire to be the lead, be the design lead on something where I I actually am an owner, where I really have a a direct and enduring interest in the result of, of the design work. When you're doing design for a client, there's nothing wrong with that. But there is a certain aspect where, you know, you you do the best work you can, and then you leave it in their capable hands, and you trust that everything is going to work out beautifully. And sometimes, you know, I mean, some designers get very bitter about it because they're like, oh, I'm making people successful, and I'm making people <laughs> money, and I don't get to keep any of it. And so, um, there's I've always had this desire to really sink my teeth into a project, not as just a contract designer but as an owner and being at IDEO also was probably the first time where I was engaged in the design process for not just an identity or a magazine but a whole ecosystem of products and interactions and business models and marketing and like the you know the 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 really like the complete holistic experience and I started to I learned really to see the holistic experience design is something that I was actually capable of doing. And, you know, I did many, many projects at IDEO that were, that had that kind of approach where it wasn't just, you know, like hyper-focused on like a logo or, you know, a kind of like iota of design, but it was, you know, a whole, a whole, um, you know, a whole system. And so, you know, that just kind of quickened my desire to, you know, really have something that I could kind of put all of my energy towards. And so, um, when Gina had this moment in her career, and you know, of course, I've at this point we had been together for probably ten years already, and I've seen Gina through many different phases of her academic career, um, from the early flush of hope and excitement in her PhD program to the crushing kind of like latter years of it, where it was really challenging, um, and I've always wanted to sort of, you know take advantage of all of her skills and what a fascinating and interesting person she is and to build something together. So this kind of was the moment where my unmet needs and her unmet needs aligned beautifully. And then we just, you know, we just realized, and actually there was, there was a moment, there was a moment when, when we realized that we had successfully planned our wedding in Columbus, Ohio from Los Angeles 
and it came off fairly beautifully. And we managed to do this without killing each other. We were like, you know, we could probably have a company together. Well, we, was, were, we were also both working full time when we did that. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so th- there was kind of like, we almost had like our trial period was planning our wedding. And then, and then we, we kind of were like, yeah, you know, we could do something. Did you both immediately quit your full-time jobs before starting? Oh, no. No, no. I, uh, was, I was freelancing for about two years in L.A. Um, on and off. And the pre-freelance projects I was taking began to get bigger and bigger. And I was employing other people to do them because I was doing film projects and interaction design and all kinds of stuff. Gina was... Well, I was, I was, I was experimenting with writing for a while. And then, um, and then once we once the seed of this business was planted in our minds and we thought, okay, um, we're going to nurture this. I, I was the one who took on a lot of the initial research. What would it take? What do we need? What does tea mean? What is tea culture? Uh, what do, and the biggest question that we had was what do, what is tea in America and how can we make that better than it's ever been? Um, because the, the, what we, what really got us going was, was that, one, we had moved from the Bay Area where there, there is a tea culture and there are places to go and have tea. Um, and there were 10 years ago when I was there. And in LA, it's very hard to find. And everything that we found is sort of lacking. It com- combined with the, t- the fact that every time we've traveled, even to remote places in the world, the tea is wonderful. So we, so I, so, so Aaron said, okay, well, let's, why don't we create this sort of, you, t- you start the research process for the tea company while I'm paying the bills. And we'll just, you know, we would consult and I started reading everything I could and thinking to myself, all right, I hope I don't have to go and get another like tea school degree or something because I already have plenty of debt and plenty of degrees. But, um, but it was really exciting. It was, it was tying together, like I said, all of my love of gastronomy. Um, I was a bartender before, before getting my PhD and all of this scent exploration. And so really fleshing out not just the space but 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 this is another thing another another link that Aaron and I have which is our passion for um, ethnographic research or really just any research we love researching so I had the time I certainly had the skill and it was really great to get started so so we kind of we kind of tiptoed into it in a way I mean I was still doing very big complicated projects while we were in we actually had a year of pre uh, pre launch development, and one of the first things we did was we did like a thirteen person Los Angeles ethnographic study on tea, where we we made a kind of a prototype tea kit that included three different teas that were kind of analogous to something that we would release, like just amazing tea that we found from another manufacturer, um, and we kind of built this like luxurious black lacquer box around it and gave people a the kind of infuser we thought they would want to use and some instructions and said, okay, drink tea for a week and then we're going to come and interview you for 90 minutes about it and to to understand what worked for you and what didn't and what the experience was like. And we just were blown away by some of the responses we got. Uh, We had people tell us that like, you know, like that week had like changed their life because now they're a tea and coffee drinker and they thought they had to choose. And, but we, I mean, there were, there were some little epiphanies like that for people, but what we got out of it was a very kind of, um, broad idea of what's missing in tea as a category, as a you know, and also as a cultural, a cultural construction. Because people have a lot of ideas about tea that don't necessarily correspond to the thing that's in the, your cup. Um, 
And so that study gave us a lot of the kind of insight that we built August on and the, the ways in which August is different and is a little bit weird, um, whether overtly or subtly, came out of that study that kind of gave us the, the experience blueprint for the brand. What were some of the things that surprised you from their feedback? Was there anything other than just the impact that it had on their lives? I think so. I think what the, the one thing that sticks with us so more than anything else um, is how much tea in this country is part of a person's identity. We hear, we heard in that study and we hear over and over again when we do tastings, when we meet, whether it's for um, a potential client or just someone at a pop-up, um, people will say to us, oh no, I'm not a tea drinker. And that really stunned us because we didn't think of ourselves as tea drinkers and we didn't grow up in tea loving families. And we, we didn't realize that was like an identity yeah, thing that no like, idea. you know, like people, Oh yeah, I'm not a tea person. We hear right. it. We hear it all the time. And, and it's, it's funny. Um, so that really, that really gave us pause. And I think one of the other things that we realize is that how many of these things that seem to be huge hurdles were massive opportunities. I don't think we realized going into it how vast the opportunity was and is in, um, in the tea space in this country. Uh, and I think that's also because Aaron and I have always had really strong affinities and relationships to other cultures. I mean, Aaron is is very connected to Japanese culture. He's been there many times. He's worked there. He, you know, you weren't a student there, but no, but I, I studied. I did four years of Japanese. Um, and you know, and and my experience with with France. I mean, I think we we just were not able to see through the lens of people unlike us that this was just a, kind of a weird experience. And and the thing that that could happen is that tea could be it's delicious. It could be modern. It could be cool. It could be all of these things that and that and the people's surprise made us realize, oh, wow, it's not cool. <laughs> it's not delicious. It's, you know, it's something else. And so we're constantly receiving this this sort of negative um, cliches about tea or just negative information. What could be perceived that way and realizing, wow, there's so much more exciting work for us to do. We, we it, that study kind of gave us a window into how in a weird way, how privileged our experience with tea has been. Because we've traveled a lot, we've had tea in places where people actually care about it, and that kind of set the bar for us. And then, you know, when we, a lot of our friends, and you know, I mean, our friends are people who are not so different than us. We weren't like going all over the map, demographically speaking. And a lot of our friends were still, you know, had had nothing but bad experiences with tea. And because of that, they just have incredibly low expectations. And who you know it's it's really not shocking when you go to even a kind of fancier grocery store like whole foods almost all of the tea is medicinal in nature it's not something that you drink for pleasure it's something that you drink when something's wrong with you and you know no wonder people aren't really thrilled about getting involved with it it's like you know are you a fan of cough syrup no i'm not i mean that's normal you know but you know with tea we've thought of it as a a beverage that you drink for pleasure and we realize that that's not a, something that that we share with a lot of people a lot of people don't think of it that way at all right actually i i was just watching i know we said we we'd watch out for talking about tv shows but this is totally relevant <laughs> <laughs> i was watching um jerry seinfeld's new show 
comedians in cars getting coffee and I love Jerry Seinfeld so I thought this will be great I love comedians too and he had a show with Larry David whom I absolutely love and Larry David apparently drinks tea he doesn't and so he part of that little episode was devoted to why he he thinks that his drinking tea and he stopped drinking coffee to drink tea why um that ended his marriage and he's he he poses this question jerry what's the difference it's still it's still a hot beverage you see the steam it's the same mug what do you care what i'm drinking you can't even see what's in right but jerry says something which is absolutely true he said no it's come on he's like and he said coffee is about the mood so what they were saying is something that confirms what we have been trying to, what we believe and what we are trying to influence, which is that tea should be, it should serve a mood and not necessarily a function and, and actually a, an, a, a, an unfortunate function, right? You know, when you're sick, when you can't handle something, when you're hungover, um, whatever it is. Tea should be just as it, it, it not should be. It, ha, it can be just as gourmet, just as beautiful, just as interesting as anything else. As any other beverage. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, there's, um, there's a thing that we've seen, and this is partially perpetuated by tea companies, but a lot of people feel like they need to have a degree in Chinese literature in order to be a tea drinker. Like, it's like, like you have to, in order to appreciate the tea, people expect that they have to like catapult themselves into some foreign culture, whether it's like British or, you know, like matcha ceremony or, you know, like gong fu Chinese tea or whatever. And all of those traditions are beautiful and amazing, but they're very intimidating to people. And a lot of the tea companies will make that part of their marketing and they will kind of like Asian, they'll, they'll dress their brand in kind of Asian graphic language and, it's funny because coffee, if we use that as a kind of case study of another category of beverage that's very, very similar to tea, no one expects you to think of Africa when you're drinking a cup of coffee. Nobody's saying, oh, yeah, like, let's just go to Honduras mentally, you know, or let's let's do, um, you know, the Tanzanian coffee ceremony. There is none of that. Coffee is about here and now. And it's about who you're with, and it's about the place you're in. It's not about a far off, you know, a far off place or a foreign tradition. And that's part of what we're doing with tea is to extricate tea from all of that hyper exoticization. Exactly, and to, and all of those traditions that don't really fit into our lives anymore. So in a way, we want tea to be just another delicious beverage that people can enjoy without uh, stigma. Right. Did you always know that the path to doing what you wanted to do and introducing tea in that way would be helping people make tea at home? Because so many other times I think of Samovar in San Francisco that got me into tea, got a lot of people into tea. It's a, it's a physical space and they do it that way. Was that always obvious to you that this was the way you wanted to do it? I don't think so. I would, I would say... This was something, it was a, a sort of blind spot that we had going into this ethnographic study that we did, but it's it's another thing that we learned that's that's really informed our business model too, is the educational part. And that's where a lot of my um, my experience in teaching has has surprisingly come into play and has been really useful. And, and Aaron, Aaron as well. I mean, whenever, a lot of the projects he was working on had an educational de- development or element or an inform, informing people. How can you make 
the instructions on a frozen food package uh, useful to the average con like consumer. Um, and so, I th but I think in this study, one of the things that we realized was the instructions that we wrote, they didn't reach half of the people that we sent them to. And we tried so hard to make it really pared down. We thought, oh gosh, what are we doing? But we realized how important the teaching aspect was to our product so that people could make something that tasted good to them. I mean, that's really, that's what it comes down to for us. And we want, we want, we, we started to realize that this has a ritualistic element to it that we didn't consider because when we were also thinking, oh, ritual, oh, that could be tying into these foreign sure. um, associations. But no, I think, I think there's a lot of desire amongst um, young Americans to create new rituals. And we heard that word come up over and over again, and it was totally divorced uh, from any specific culture. People would just say, oh, I really, what I like about tea is that it takes the time, you show us how to do it, we make it our own. Mm -hmm. And that, that, I think that really surprised us because we were very focused on the, the outcome, the tea tasting good. And our goal was not, oh, create an opportunity for people to ritualize something new. I think another thing that we, almost took for granted in starting the company was that we, you know, Gina told the story about writing the, almost writing this experience blueprint for what it would be like to visit this tea room that was, you know, that she kind of like imagined. And for us, you know, we, we started this company in a very bootstrapped fashion. We didn't, you know, there isn't a ton of funding available for tea companies. I mean, it's not exactly like a kind of humongous category that investors are, chomping at the bit to get engaged with. So, you know, we, it was just a fact of our, or an economic reality that kind of put us into starting with the product first and then building the business around the product. And then eventually we'll build the physical location around the product. But it's, you know, it's sort of a matter of us getting to the right size to where we can do that without, um, you know, without taking on too much risk. And so we've, our focus on at home has become kind of deeper and deeper as we've learned more about our customers and we've corresponded with them more and as we've iterated on our, you know, our teaching materials and all of that. And um, it's, you know, we're realizing that that's actually a really great way for us to cultivate a relationship with our customers uh, because we're, you know, we're in their kitchens and we're part of their everyday life. And also for, even for the restaurants, um, you know, I think most of the restaurants that we're in, we've gotten into because somebody who knows somebody had our tea at home, and then you know that's kind of tipped into something else. Um, so it's it's not tea is such a nascent category. It's so kind of like it's almost like in slumber. It has yet to be revived. So we're kind of like you know trying to kind of wake people up and kind of put some attention on tea. And I mean, of course, ours specifically, but. Um, but just trying to get people to think about it again so that there can be a little bit of a creative renaissance in it. Because right now people aren't even, tea is not even on the map yet. Is there a misconception that people have about tea other than seeing it as something exotic and something that they have to have certain rituals around or understand? I think people think of tea, uh, we, we, we touched on this lightly, um, but I think a lot of people see tea in opposition to other things. They don't see it as a 
as something you can integrate. And people are frequently surprised when they meet us that we go to, we go, we have coffee. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't, tea is not defining our lifestyle. Um, it's, it's just part of it. And so I think that led us to, to really, to really discuss it amongst ourselves and to read about it. And, and I think, especially in this country, but I think it's true globally that tea is generally, when you compare tea to coffee, you oppose it to coffee, uh, tea is a, a medicine and coffee is a drug. I would say the only place that's not really true is in Asia um, because it, we've been told many times, we've experienced it firsthand, that tea is something that everyone drinks. It is not, it, there are herbs which are medicinal, but tea is not inherently a health beverage. Um, you know, you can, you can drink it all day long and, and, and get a nice little buzz too. But, um, but yeah, that, that opposition is something that, that is a huge misconception, which I think really prevents people from even trying it, even, even saying, oh, maybe I might desire that. Maybe there's a tea out there that I could really like just because they think, oh, tea, ugh. No, I mean, it's something when I'm sick. People tell us all the time, oh, it's cold out. Oh, I'm sick. Um, I'm really loving your tea. And while I'm glad people are loving our tea, I generally don't want to hear it prefaced by I'm sick. So, because your taste buds are, of course, dulled. And I think an, another thing that we we see all the time is that, um, that, you know, people think of tea as a marginal beverage or something that's kind of like, you know, oh, there's maybe, you know, maybe somebody drinks tea every once in a while. But if you get out of the U.S., tea is the number two most consumed beverage in the world after water. Though it's it, aside from water, it's the most consumed beverage globally. Um, so I think that we're, you know, the U.S. to a certain extent is in a little bit of a cultural bubble when it comes to tea, and in a way, it just it's, you know, and Gina did a bunch of historical research to sort of understand how we came to this point culturally which is, you know, kind of an interesting story in its own right. But in a way, it's, um, you know, we, we've gone to look at the stories of how wine and how coffee and how beer have had their revivals over the last 30 years. And we see tea as being kind of in a pre-revived state in a way, like before, before craft beer in the U.S., when all you could get was an Anheuser-Busch product or something like that, or before you know, the California wine movement kind of shifted everybody's language to talking about grapes and, you know, in the old model of talking about regions, um, you know, where Europe was sort of setting the pace for how uh, we talked about wines. Wine was still considered to be kind of elitist and, you know, stuffy and complicated and, you know, suffering a lot of the image problems that tea has today. Um, I mean, people also think it's hard to make tea, which blows my mind. Right, we hear a lot that it's fussy. <laughs> tea is fussy, but but you cannot tell me that it's fussy when you own four different types of brewing equipment for coffee, and maybe you know how to use those, <laughs> or maybe you don't. Um, but there was one one misconception that I would love to talk about that that I think a lot of people don't think of, and it's something that you know you wouldn't necessarily think of unless you were trying to sell tea like we are. Um, and that's that the, this misconception that tea is for women. We hear this over and over again, and we have right. discovered so many men in what we like to call amongst ourselves this tea closet. You know, we and there's a there there is 
a, a, a population out there of American tea guys. And they have, and they think, oh, and we and we hear from, oh, this this is great. You know, I love your packaging and to, because our packaging is deliberately not um, health, sterile, you know, lighthearted zen, no, nor is it um, pastel and, you know, conventionally feminine. And we, so we, we try to make it as, as, you know, austere and androgynous as possible. And, and we hear from men all the time, oh, wow, I, I, I could drink this. I wouldn't, I would buy this for myself. Um, but then there's still so many people, um, who would tell us, Oh, um, my grandmother would love this. Oh, my, my girlfriend would love this. And over the, over the holidays, Aaron was selling at a pop-up and he said, yeah, this guy came over and, um, he said, Oh, this is great. I really love this. And he asked all these questions and he said, yeah, I'm going to buy this for my girlfriend. Something about his demeanor said to Aaron, he's not buying it for his girlfriend, but like, he didn't want to say this dude's in the tea closet. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's, I mean, it's amazing. Like we'll have people come to us when we do physical events and sometimes they're kind of, they, they come up in an almost confessional tone. Like I don't drink coffee at all. Like big tatted up guy with a yeah. beard and like, you know, like all this anyway, like looking like a biker. But like, you know, there's this shame in a way. And you know, one of, the, one of the things that we discovered really early, if you go into Google images and search for tea drinker, the images, the people you see will just, it'll make you sad. It's like- <laughs> Can you'll, you describe one of them? Like, <laughs> like there's, if I remember correctly, you would see a kind of like greasy androgynous person with disheveled clothing pulling a bizarre facial expression holding up a teacup with their pinky out um there was uh, a picture of a of a woman in a bathrobe shot like over her shoulder on a couch like looking totally ill there was a picture of um the mad hat johnny depp as the mad hatter uh, and then a picture of Prince Charles. Right. I mean, no, nothing aspirational, well, nothing just, cool at all. Just today, we were driving behind a bus, and and Aaron pointed out this tea brand. I don't remember, and it doesn't matter who it was, but but their ad was presumably an attractive young woman, but her she was blowing her nose, and this was their bus ad. This is trying to sell tea, a woman blowing her nose. I thought, oh no, we still have so much work to do. What would you say is your biggest challenge as a business right now trying to to grow it and and achieve your goals? There we are we are offering something that people don't know that they want yet. We have we have a a product that is so different than what people have typically experienced that in a way until they taste it, until they have some kind of visceral contact with it, they don't have any reason to believe that it's special. And so our great burden is to try to figure out a way to to bring that sensory contact to people in a totally frictionless way. And we're really, we're inspired by actually Warby Parker um, in their, the way that they built their home try-on program to, you know, I mean, they're a, at least at the time that we did the program, they were, they had no stores at all, no physical retail, but you know, you have to have contact with the product before you're really going to be comfortable giving them your money, especially for something as intimate as a pair of eyeglasses. So we're thinking, you know, we have yet to 
land on a solution, but we are dreaming up all these different models of how we can get tea into people's hands in a kind of zero risk environment where people, you know, can can test if the hype is is deserved or not. Because right now, you know, I'm trying to put my shoes in the in or myself in the shoes of the customer who maybe has maybe they'll be listening to this podcast and maybe they'll be like, oh well, okay, this sounds cool, but really, is it that great? Come on, you know. And right now, if they have that kind of doubt, why would they give us thirty nine dollars to buy a starter kit, even with free shipping, if they don't, you know, if if they think, oh well, maybe it's not that great. So we need to, we really need to solve that. We need to create a way that, that people can experience RT with a way lower barrier of entry. You guys have worked uh, with a lot of restaurants. The most notable one I saw was, was Alma, which Bon Appetit rated in 2013 as the best new restaurant in America. Have you found that working with restaurants has helped you do that to introduce people to what makes your tea special? I think so. I think, I think we live in a culture well it's it's not just a thought we definitely live in a a culture of unprecedented chef celebrity and i think that chefs i'm very happy to say have voices where they never had them before they were really just in the background the restaurant um itself took all of the you know praise that 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 they had um and so when we have i would say that chefs are our greatest advocates actually they have they get what we're doing so immediately. All they have to do is smell the dry leaf and they say, oh, okay, 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 this is totally different. There's a, there's a kind of confidence and a trust in the senses that chefs have. That, I mean, that's their, that's their bread and butter as, as, you know, as professionals is they, they trust their senses very deeply and they can make just instantaneous judgments about the quality of a product. And so when we've, you know, there are a few chefs that we have worked with in LA who have just been um, just so enthusiastic and so encouraging and they've introduced us to lots of people. And almost every restaurant that we're in has been through one chef or telling another chef or, you know, like just a very small network of people. Right, but even I would say um, times when it, so Aaron and I are very inspired by what's happening in the design world um, and what's happening in the culinary world. And I'm the culinary lead, and so every it's it's the best ongoing research project I have ever had because every absolutely everything I smell and taste is fair game for tea inspiration. Um, and there have been times when we have given chefs. Even when we were in Spain last summer, um, we had a phenomenal meal at a, a slightly unusual, very small restaurant in Barcelona, and we were so excited. There was one dish in particular that um, that I took notes on because I had never had these flavor combinations before, and we sent just just for fun um, because we, and out of out of gratitude for the meal that we had, we sent a starter kit to this chef. He actually took the time to write to us and say and tell us what his experience was, and it was it was e- extremely positive. And he him, he himself is not a tea drinker, which he says as an Australian. Um, he said, "Yeah, you know, because he's quite aware of that because it's abnormal for him to not be a tea drinker." But but just the enthusiasm that we get from other culinary designers is is so inspiring beyond the visibility that we get. And we, we haven't had a lot of, we haven't had a lot of name dropping. Um, we did have, we did a project for 
a bar that is in a new restaurant from Alain Ducasse. And it's funny, his name keeps coming up through the different chefs that we know and who have studied with him. But but apparently the, there, was a, there was a cocktail done by some uh, friends of ours who, who love to make cocktails with RTs um, when it's when it's uh, it works for them and they said oh you know we just wanted to let you know that he really loved this cocktail with your tea in it so we thought okay I mean so it's it's because we're not as a startup we're not we're not rolling in money um, these these little these little snippets of excitement from people that we absolutely admire um, they really keep us going totally and I mean it's it's uh it's great when we have a positive response from anybody, but you know, in our in the kind of like you know culinary universe, these some of these chefs are the highest authority that we could that we could receive praise from, at least for us. So, uh, it's it's incredibly motivating. Can you give an example of the process from being inspired by something to making a tea blend out of it? Sure. You sort of alluded to it. I'd yeah. love to hear an example. You should tell the Barcelona story. I'll tell the Barcelona story. Um, so Aaron and I went on this extraordinary um, inspiration trip to Barcelona and to San Sebastian, um, both in really like unusual Spanish cities uh, as as far as being as whatever, you know, what what Spanish culture is. And so Barcelona, we went to this place and we had a dish that was, um, it was burrata, so it was stracciatella cheese, which is part the softest part of the burrata cheese. And it had uh, rose oil, no, rose water, lime oil, and white peaches. And I and I, but every dish that we had there was phenomenal. And, and, and it was so clear that the chef had a sense of humor that was probably lost on everybody. But that particular dish just stopped me and I just started taking notes on my phone. So, you know, it's, 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 it's helpful uh, in a pinch. But that one, it just haunted me, those flavors. And I thought, God, this, the, the creaminess with all these highly aromatic, you have citrus, you have floral, what is going on here? And I said, I'm gonna make a tea with this. This has happened before and has not been super successful, but I was so excited about it. Um, we put together a spec sheet immediately, uh, and the company that we work with, who helps us to execute the blends, they sent us samples. And I said, um, "Let's just let's just try a bunch of different things. Um, here's what I want it to taste like." And I was very specific about the creaminess that I wanted. I didn't tell them about the dish. I just said, "Here's what I want it to taste like," and we got the samples back. And there were two of them that were just phenomenal. I have never had tea like that. And I thought, okay, this is, we're not going to wait on this one because the way that it works is that we have a library of teas and, um, we will, we, we develop well, we maybe develop. 10 teas for every one that we release. Exactly. We, we just, it's kind of an ongoing process of converting that inspiration into blends and then then we kind of figure out how, how they're going to be released or if they will so we always have we the library keeps growing but sometimes we'll both be really just enamored of one particular tea and we'll we'll say okay this has to we have to put this into production immediately selfishly so that we can start drinking it um, and so that one that was a really direct really exciting um, correlation. There's another example that's much shorter um, and it has to do with coffee. We have a tea that is our top seller from last summer, last spring summer, and uh, it's called Jet Black. And I, 
that tea took a really long time to perfect because the concept was simple. The concept was to make a tea with coffee in it because I love the smell of coffee, but every time we go get coffee, I wouldn't say every time, most of the time I will get the coffee, smell it, think this is wonderful, put it in my mouth and say, oh God, why did I do that? I don't, this is not what I want to taste and it ruins my palate for the rest of the day. Um, just because I'm much more sensitive to it now, I still like coffee, but, but I thought I need to make a tea that can have this aroma of coffee and elements of coffee, but especially the, the, the smell of like a creamy coffee cortado or Gibraltar, but in tea. You don't, I want to have the, the, the mouthfeel of tea. So we worked on this over and over again. Aaron became despondent. He said, look, this is not working. Let's just table it. Was, it. it was tasting like instant coffee. Or Folgers. At, at and we point. had different, you know, was, different sorts of coffee. There, and there were times when it was just, I was just like, no, we have to stop. <laughs> this is just, we're wasting our time here. Because it just started to feel like, to me, we were, we, were, we were making this thing that was going to be this incredibly unsatisfying echo of coffee. Right. And then, but Gina always the champion uh, flavor champion pressed on and by like the ninth revision or so mm -hmm. we got something we got that was delicious on its own and it didn't have to be framed as you know like a coffee substitute or anything yeah. like that it was just the, its own delicious weird animal and and people so often will say it, if people tell us that they're coffee drinkers they're not as opposed to tea drink I'm not a tea drinker I'm a coffee drinker that tea grabs their attention or people who tell us, oh, I, I can't drink coffee like I used to, but I still love it, that gets their attention too. And and it's just it's just a lovely experience. It's not a coffee substitute. So it's not exactly tea and it's not exactly coffee, but, and I kind of like that it's blurring that boundary because, well, I like both still. So. Mm -hmm. It's kind of transgressive in a weird way. A little bit, yeah, because it, it, it deliberately plays with this notion that you have to have you have to be a coffee drinker or a tea drinker. Mm -hmm. So what's the easiest way for someone to try one of your teas? Well, um, the easiest way is to probably go through our website because we do priority shipping. We have international shipping. Um, and almost and, all of it is free. Right. Almost all of it is free. Uh, starter kit is by far uh, the best way to do it because we don't expect everyone to like every single one of our teas. We all have different moods and different palettes. So, um, so the starter kit has deluxe samples of all of the five teas of the season. And by deluxe, I mean four servings each. So a total of 20 cups and you get the infuser. Uh, you also get a brew guide with instructions for all sorts of fun, nerdy things with tea. Um, and also how to use tea with alcohol and cocktails, how to chill tea. So that's really, that's the first, I think that's the first step. That's the easiest way to do it. And if you're in LA, it's, there are lots of other places to go and try the tea or to smell the tea. So there's the assembly uh, in on Robertson, West Hollywood. Um, Rose in Rose Venice. in Venice. Bestia has our has a custom iced tea blend of ours, chilled on draft, um, that we do not sell, unfortunately. Um, the Springs on Mateo. Um, the Alma pop up at the Standard. Armanos Coffee pop up in the Standard downtown. Uh, Pica, Peru on Pico. Mm -hmm. And then the, our latest edition is uh, a new hybrid cafe bicycle shop in the arts district called the wheelhouse oh right and i forgot square probably one of the places that we go of to course. more often square, square one. one on hyperion yeah. um such uh, a lovely uh, there's a there's a complete list on our website yes. in any case and the you know it's especially if you 
don't even want to, uh, you know, approach brewing tea at home right away. It's, you know, if you, if you're fortunate enough to live in LA, you know, there are a lot of places where you can go try our tea and just have somebody make it for you. And, you know, it's a, it's much lighter burden. The other exciting thing for us, um, that restaurants are doing and the cafes are doing is that they're doing fun things like tea lattes and and so you can have you can have these different riffs and or the assembly has a really great Arnold Palmer that they do with one of our teas so yeah all right Aaron and Gina thanks so much for joining us thank you thank you